All right, all right, all right. <clears throat> Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum Stay on target. Maximum Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast, episode 43. Talking about first, they killed my father. We have a special guest coming up, but first I want to say hello to Robert. We are considering... Oh, no. Going, going over there to see you. Oh, shit. Not it's, this weekend. It's, but it's not next, really happening, is it? The next weekend. Are pigs flying by the window? Well, my wife's saying the same thing. She's like, you're just talking about this. It's not actually going to happen. Yeah. But yeah. We'll, we'll see. So it'd be the weekend of the 6th. And that is the weekend of the um, Mises Institute in New York City doing their 35th anniversary. So our Rothbard Roundtable probably won't happen that weekend. So I can... Sneak away. Sneak away. So let me break this down, and you can tell me how realistic this sounds. You are going to, let's say, like probably like on a Friday, or would it be a Saturday morning? Probably pack up all your stuff. Pack up all the stuff the night before, whatever day you're thinking of actually going. And then that next morning, waking up all the kids, get everybody to have food, get everybody ready for a long car ride, throw everybody in the car, Stop drive for more like four hours because you're probably going to want to stop, check some, you know, the kids need to go pee or something. And Well, they're going to go NASA style. They're going to wear the adult diapers and just whiz in those so we can just go straight. Uh-huh. Okay, good, good plan. All right, you already got those all bought off on Amazon. Good deal. And then you're going to arrive here and then you're going to unload all these kids and stuff and then figure out how you're going to sleep and then sleep here for two days. No, it would be one day. It depends on which day you're leaving. And then it would be one night, maybe two nights, and then get up, have breakfast, take off, and go back home. This is this is what you're planning? Yeah, it sounds pretty terrible when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, that's why when people go on long car trips, they usually stay for a little bit longer than a day or two and having to go back. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing that, that the wife told me was, well, we can't go over there and then just you and him hang out and drink beers. You're going to need to be involved with our kids. Yeah, that's another thing. Absolutely. you got to consider everybody's entertainment. Yeah, so it's probably a bad plan. But I was thinking it's our before the snow happens in the past, it's like the only opportunity to really do it. We don't want to go anywhere when it's shitty out, you know? Yeah, if you're going to do it, you got to do it now before the snows come and Highway 20 shuts down. So talk to me a little bit more. This might be, well, I mean, not that I would ever say, hey, don't come over here. What What is driving this uh, this visit? Well, I would be driving my own vehicle. Bad joke. Uh, part of it is because when the winter comes, we're going to be, we're going to feel like shut-ins. So I want to kind of get the kids out and go do something before the roads are really terrible. Yeah. Another part is there's some movies that are not available on the UV that we could then watch together and then do shows about. And I've wanted to come and see where you are, you are staying while you're still there because you're already like in Kathleen Turner Overdrive over there, right? Like you're already yeah, there longer okay. than you thought you would be. Yep. So I don't know. I mean, it's like it doesn't need to happen, 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Because, it, well, you know, you probably need some sort of serious drive for it to happen at all. Like we were talking to with our guest last night. You gotta have, you gotta plan stuff out. You gotta have a drive to do it. Yeah, yeah. You gotta have a big audacious, audacious goal and, and start telling people that's what you're gonna do. And yeah, make uh, little bits of progress each time, every every day. Yeah. So that, that's why I'm announcing it to the world right now. All of our Patreon supporters told my wife. I might even tell people at work that I'm gonna need a few days off so I can not be bothered with responding to emails and phone calls. It'd be great. There you go. Of course, I might just uh, might just do that anyway and and not go anywhere. There you go. <laughs> Just tell them to fuck off for a little while. <laughs> oh, good stuff. Let everyone know that this is the number one podcast in the universe talking about movies from an anarcho-capitalist perspective. What do you think of them apples there, Robert? <laughs> We're number one in our own category. That's really impressive, Daniel. Our own self-created category. Division of labor, specialization, number one with a bullet. We're also at the bottom of the list, but I'm going to leave that part out. What are we on the bottom list of? Uh, we are also the, the no, worst we're, podcast we're on the, the planet about uh, movies from an, an AMCAP perspective. Okay, because we're the only. Is that what you're, that's what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, we're the one and the only. We're both the best and the worst. The Alpha and Omega. I think that's a biblical reference. I'm not really sure. Something like All that. All right. We can't get any better, so there's literally no reason to improve. No, I mean, everything is equal now. Uh, the uh, real communism has taken root, and we're egalitarian now. Everyone is equally good at things, and we all equally work hard and receive our equal share, and everything's good. Time to kick our feet up then, right? Well, I mean, you got to build your own hut and go out and work all day, and then... Oh, wait, uh, what? No, that get, sounds like a uh, show. I don't want to do that. Get hit in the face with the butt of a rifle and uh, threatened with murder for not, you know, picking picking things fast enough. Or whatever. I mean, uh, that's what we're talking about here, right? First, I killed my father. Yeah, this the... is your sales pitch. You probably shouldn't want to lead with that. You should probably lead with how you're my friend and how you're doing this all great for everybody and it's building a better world and everybody's going to be happy all the time. Because we're yes. all equal, right? We're all and equally, equally happy. Because that's one thing is that nobody in that movie was ever happy at ever any point in time. So it made me wonder why they were doing it. What did they see? I mean, at some point, when you have your communist revolution and it's some giant shit show, at some point you go, oh, this is, this is no good. Don't you? Or you just go with it because you're deathly afraid of getting murdered by all the people you've been screwing over this whole time. Yeah, man, it's a good question, and we'll get into it. Uh, but now is a good time as any to introduce our comrade, guest, friend of the show, writer for the site, brother in arms, uh, Stephen Clyde. How are you doing, Stephen? Doing good, Dan. Thanks for finally having me on your podcast. Yeah, I can't believe it took us till episode 43, where everyone can find this at actualanarchy.com slash 43. We, we should have had you on like episode two or something. Probably hey, a bit more appropriate. We're still going to do Wolf of Wall Street, too. So, you know, they'll knock off that, too. All right. Yeah, I'm down to do that one. That sounds fun. Yeah, sounds good. So, uh, Stephen, seeing as how you have been on the show before, why don't you introduce yourself to our guests or our audience? I guess our audience is our guest usually, and vice versa. But yeah, let let uh, let our audience know who you are, what you do, and then uh, we'll get into this movie, shall we? Well, uh, I'm currently a student uh, going for a degree in economics. I'll be starting my BA this January. Um, hope to get a PhD in it, but it's one of my long-term goals right now. Um, I'm an anarcho-capitalist in the Rothbardian sense. Uh, I I think I kind of started out as a minarchist, but you know, over the course of time you learn about more intrusive things that the government's done not less intrusive and you, you find you know less reason to regard government in any high sense 
And if you don't mind me asking, Stephen, just let me butt in here. Uh, what is it you're planning on doing with your degree? Oh, I mean, I, I think that's one of the beautiful things about an economics degree is you're not confined to doing just one thing. I mean, I, I, I could just start my own business and I'm, you know, I'd be happy with an economics degree, but you know, I could go be a professor. I could go work for a think tank. I, I could go work for Bob Murphy's think tank. You know, just the options are kind of limitless, and that's what I really like about it. I would hate to go into a major where you're kind of confined to doing one thing once you get your degree. I really, I really can't do that. My, my mind just doesn't work like that. I like to be free. You know, kind of obvious. Weirdo. Okay. <laughs> Another beauty, beautiful thing about uh, an economics degree is that you can be wrong uh, most of the time, and it doesn't seem to affect position or, or career. Oh, I, I know there's going to be times where I take tests, and I'm going to have to answer. I'm going to have to give the wrong answer to get to get it right, and I'm sure you know what I mean. You know, it's, it's going to ask, well, what's the best for an economy? You know, some regulations, no regulations, and, you know, their correct answer is some regulations, and, you know, my, my answer is the correct one, damn it. Yeah, yeah, but you know, uh, the whole economics thing mainstream wise, they're wrong constantly, right? Because their models never I mean the methodology is all backwards. So of course their models are never going to work. Uh the empirical uh divining that they do, I mean you can twist the studies and the and the numbers however you wish to achieve the outcome that you're desiring, and it really just leaves it so open that uh, no one can really ever be right, no one can ever really be wrong unless you take the Austrian approach, the praxeological approach, and build it based on logic. Uh, but since most economists don't do that, it's a wonder to me that they still have any credibility at all. Uh, it's almost like weathermen. Yeah, and you know, I, I, I remember Tom was talking about this one time. The, the average, you know, I, I'm sure you guys are aware of uh, The Economist and you know, the information they put out. Tom was talking about the average amount of readers per article for The Economist is about two to three. And you, you can imagine just one of those views is just the own writer just, you know, clicking to see like, hey, did anyone read my article? And like the others are probably like, hey, you know, friends, the guy showed his article to. It's just, you know, no one reads these things because they're just a bunch of dumb numbers. They don't, they don't relate to people. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure Bob Murphy, an economist, you know, gets bored reading this stuff. I mean, it's just a bunch of dumb numbers. It doesn't, it doesn't relate to what, what's actually going on. That's exactly what Austrian economics tries to do. Yeah. So would you say that the majority of your professors are Keynesians or Chicago yeah. or London? Or what, what, kind of, what kind of stuff are you seeing? Yeah, Robert. I mean, I don't know if you've had, uh, talked to Dennis, but, you know, Dennis was talking about how he's been an economist for, what, like 30 plus years, and they, they won't give him tenure. And it's obviously, what other reason could it be other than his views? So, yeah, obviously, a lot of my professors that I've taken economics class with have been Keynesian, but my very, very, very first economics professor was very good. And he was the reason I, I got involved in economics in the first place. I mean, I, I actually emailed him uh, a few months ago, and this was like six years after I taken his, took his class, and I was just like, hey, you know, thank you so much for putting me on a path to, to actual success because I would have been a socialist. Uh, you know, I, my first classes in college were uh, sociology. Uh, I had English with a socialist professor. Um, I forget what other classes I took, but, you know, I, I was just on the path to socialism unless I took this one economics class. It was just, I didn't even have to take this class. I think my dad just mentioned to me like, hey, you know, you're trying to fill in classes, try economics, you know, it'll really help you. It'll really help explain a lot of things in the world. And boy, did it. So, um, you know, I think just, just to keep their jobs, you know, a lot of professors are going to have to lean towards Keynesian economics, um, just, just to meet the whole credential system. I mean, an Austrian economics class is not filled with numbers. It's filled with logic. And, you know, how, how can we observe that things work and how humans act? And 
right. try, 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 trying to boil humans down to like objective facts or, you know, humans aren't numbers. You can't add or subtract humans. It doesn't matter. Yeah, well said. Uh, so one other thing I wanted to mention before we get going on this movie is that you are a writer for us at the site, actualanarchy.com, and up on the screen for our Patreon supporters who get the behind the scenes, they can see uh, the listing of your articles. There's, I believe, 17 of them now, so you're very prolific on our site. We have a 1,000 articles, and, and you're probably one of the bigger contributors. Yeah, it's, I want to put out more. I think school, schooling just takes up all my time, um, especially I'm taking, I'm taking like physics, biology, um, and a literature class. It just, it's really, really hard to, to mix everything together, but you know, it's why I want to hurry up and get my degree, because once you have your degree, you can do whatever you want. So there will be a time when I put out an article a day for you, but you know, try to try to put out at least one a month for now. No, that's great. Yeah, we we got to get uh, Robert writing a little bit more too. He had a really good movie review on the Lion King that got a lot of play, and uh, it was excellent. Ah, thanks. I should <laughs> I should definitely do more on the site. It's true. Way to shame me, Daniel. I appreciate that. Public shaming. Public shame. 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 And I'll point out the obvious. If you can find a way to pay me, Dan, I will put out an article a day. <laughs> well, that's obvious. <laughs> oh, if that's all it takes. All right. Yeah, we'll figure something out. All right. Well, an article. speaking of money, let's talk about abolishing it and talk about this movie. Netflix put out uh, First They Killed My Father, a film put together by Angelina Jolie. And, and normally what we do is we start out with the Google description and figure out just how wrong it is. Um, so here we go. First, they killed my father. 2017 drama film thriller, two hours and 16 minutes, 7.3 on the IMDb, 89% Rotten Tomatoes, and 95% of Google users like it. The description reads, Long Ung is five years old when the Khmer Rouge assume power over Cambodia in 1975. They soon begin a four-year reign of terror and genocide in which nearly two million Cambodians die. Forced from her family's home in Phnom Penh, Ung is trained as a child soldier while her six siblings are sent to labor camps. And that is the end of the description. Yeah. Any qualms there? I think it, it is generally accurate. Um, lots of guns in this one. Yeah, lots of uh, Kalashnikovs. Yeah, that was the thing that kind of blew me away is how did they have all the equipment and the little uniforms and the little commie headbands? They had to have like been funded by somebody because they obviously weren't producing any of that stuff. I mean, if they, they kick everybody out of, like, factories and whatever and send everybody out to the farms to drag a plow and plant the crops, nobody's actually making anything. Yeah, they did they solve that out. pesky unemployment problem. Yeah, they got rid of all money, so they're not buying anything. I mean, somebody had to, unless they had some kind of deal, I don't know historically what the, what the facts are. All I know are the, you know, what I've heard about. I mean, it's interesting that the word Pol Pot wasn't used at all, but I guess. It's all told from her perspective, so. But they didn't, yeah. like, glorify their leader, you know, like Mao. Although they did have pictures of Lenin and Stalin on some of the walls. Now, what I was trying to figure out is, is Angkor, is that the regime? Is that the name of the regime, or is that supposed to be figurative of a person? Yeah, I was, I was, take, I was taking that to be uh, the more the, the, the movement regime type thing, the organization because there's like what Ankar Wat is their famous is a famous church I guess you could call it a temple that's in the place yeah. called Angkor. Yeah, like a pyramid. It's um, funny. I, I actually just I just realized this film was by Angelina Jolie. It's, that surprised me, but yeah, I was surprised that I mean I don't know if she's a what her politics are or if she was just making it as a like a horror of war type story. 
if she read the book and enjoyed it or whatever. And she yeah, I don't want to be confusing her now. She's the one who uh, she has a lot of adopted children, a lot of them from Africa. Is that correct? Yeah, and a couple of Asian kids, I think too. Yeah. Oh, okay, I got a mix. She's an equal, yeah, equal she, opportunity uh, yeah. adopter. <laughs> yeah, she adopted them from all over the third world. But I mean, how could you watch this and not see that communist revolutions are just complete shit shows? So it seems like you know, if you're a communist, you could see this movie as some sort of anti-communist propaganda. And in lefty Hollywood. Well, they would just say it's not real communism. Right, which is what they always do. Yeah, that was definitely one thing they right, hear because me real it. communism. It's only yeah, real communism when it works. Right. So go ahead, Stephen. You're the guest. Ladies first. Uh, yeah, Lay that for oh, no, uh, I was just going to say that that definitely angered me as I watched it. You know, even just with what what we're witnessing. Um, you know, the Marxists who watch it, they'd probably just say capitalist propaganda. You know, they would say they would they would either say this didn't happen at all, or they would just downplay it and you know say it was actually a good thing, but you know the movie just took it out of proportion. Yeah, that's one possibility. Or that they're not true communists; they're authoritarian Marxists or whatever, because a lot of communists denounce Marx. Apparently. Yeah, I mean, e- even though they say the exact things the peaceful communists say, you know, they're uh, they're not true. Right. It's just, it's just that one five, what, that one, the one five percent that just changes it all from good to bad. Yeah, it's a, a slight difference. Yeah, so I guess this. Uh, well, I don't know if you, if you guys noticed the very first part of the movie was um, Nixon saying uh, Cambodia, a small country of seven million people, neutral, a neutral nation since the Geneva Agreement in 1954. Um, American policy is to respect their neutrality. Um, was. <clears throat> Daniel, did you find that information on the uh, the start of the whole Khmer Rouge? Because the movie painted it as a beginning, you know, due to American involvement in Vietnam, and then kind of reacting to that whole shit show and the United States bombing the shit out of Cambodia and kind of giving the impetus to the Khmer Rouge to get in popular support. But it had to be more than that. <clears throat> yeah, actually, there was a yeah. uh, a big time League of Shadows action going on with Pol Pot. He was Pol Pot was a, a assumed name by him that really doesn't actually mean anything. Yeah, wasn't but, he like a, a trained or taught or went to school in England or something? And he's an intellectual or something. In Paris, that totally. mm. French School of Electronics and Computer Science. So he spent time in Paris, and he was a commie back then in the Marxist circle. And he was born. Let's see, he was born as Salaf Sar, and then he adopted the name Pol Pot. Let me see where it says that. But he was native Cambodian? Yeah. Uh, he adopted the title Brother Number One and the name Pol Pot, which the origin might be Pol, because the Poles were royal slaves and aboriginal people, and Pot was simply a euphonic monosyllable that he liked. Mm-hmm. And the Khmer word Pol, however, is derived from Sanskrit bala, which means army or guard, and the Khmer spelling differs from the spelling of Pol Pot's name. The name has no particular meaning in Khmer. So, just, he wanted to have that alliteration. <laughs> Did either of you guys know um, why the Vietnamese were fighting the Cambodians? Yeah, there was a split on which communism was better. All right, so the Khmer Rouge kind of lost their power in late 1978, early 79, but Pol Pot fled to the uh, west of the country near Thailand and lived in exile until he died in 1998. Yeah, and they're an agrarian socialist style of communism, so they were saying that it was the peasant farmers who were the most oppressed, 
versus the Marxist socialist who was saying that the factory worker was the most oppressed. So in the Oppression Olympics, they were <laughs> fighting over who was the most oppressed. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the elements in the film, which I guess we'll talk about later, um, are just kind of contradictory, like the whole forcing them to build their house because no one's going to build it for you. It's kind of like, you know, you got to get down and build your house and you, you got to be an individual, but you're not allowed to be an individual. It's just very, very contradictory. Um, yeah, that stuck yeah. out to me too. You get there <laughs> and everybody's taking, supposedly taking care of everybody else, but then nobody is. And you're but, all but, on your but own. Every, after, after we've stripped you of all your possessions. Yeah, and everyone's hungry and everyone's miserable, but you know everyone's supposedly working to feed everyone else and it's very, very eerie. It's it's kind of obvious they're only working to supply the militia. Yeah, because once the little girl joins the basically the, the Hitler youth, she all of a sudden starts getting fed really well, and or at least compared to what she was, mm-hmm. she did a lot better. Yeah, and her, her brother gets beat down for <laughs> stealing food in the middle of the night. All right, so Stephen, uh, this is a movie that you picked out. So, uh, do you have like a bunch of notes, and and you kind of want to drive this thing? Ro- I know Robert just watched this, and I watched it a couple days ago. So, you feeling pretty good about this? Because this is one you seem pretty excited to do. Yeah, I, I actually just rewatched it for a second time, and I I wrote some notes from beginning to end. So, we can take it however you want to. We can go from like beginning to end of the movie, or we can just talk about the general topics, whatever you guys want. Well, this is a movie that doesn't really have like a protagonist and an antagonist in your classic kind of plot structure. It's more of just like a piece of history, slice of life type of stuff where it's from a little kid's perspective and she doesn't really understand all the things that are going on. So we don't get a whole lot of the information surrounding what's actually happening. We just get this point of view from this little girl who's just seeing all this horror all around her. So I think it'd probably be best to, I mean, talk about, you know, key events probably, but then also if as much as we can talk about you know, why communism is bad, why, you know, um, the events surrounding the movie, the best historical events surrounding as much as we know, would be good, sure, like what yeah. Dan was just talking about. Yeah, I have a good about written down, so we can probably go on for a good while, but, you know, just just kind of in the beginning of the movie, um, when they when you, you kind of realize her father was a government official, I don't know if he was a soldier, but, you know, you know, they kind of sat down in the room and they're all in their gear and they're talking about how the Khmer Rouge, you know, pretty much the adults in the room knew what was happening. And, you know, she's kind of recollecting this from her childhood. And, um, but, you know, that was one of the first things, uh, you know, the guy asked her was, uh, are you in the government? And he harassed the guy about that for, you know, five minutes. And, you know, the guy was just like, oh, I don't understand what you're asking me. And he eventually got away with it. But if, if they found out he was the government official, he wouldn't have lasted as long as he did. It's hard yeah, that to was say. Strange. The, the fact that the, the soldier kept asking him in French, is that a, does anybody know if that's the, the language of the Cambodian government? The French had that as a territory. Also, Vietnam was a territory of the French. They had, they had Indochina kind of staked out. And the killing okay. field... How long ago, into that how, long, how long previous to this did they you know, bail out? Any idea? Uh, the French were bailing out towards the 60s, I think, late 50s. Okay, so fairly recently then. So it would be understood that he would, most of the government people would speak Spanish, or French then. Right, yeah. Okay. And it's probably also why Pol Pot ended up going to France for school, right? Mm-hmm. There was that connection. It was sort of like the, the, the uh, French British Empire connection. with Australia and India and all that. Well, I can tell you one topic we could probably just go on for like an hour about is so communism at its core is built on lies. So let's just look at, you know, from the start when the Khmer Rouge is coming in and they're all in their big tanks and 
you know, one of the first things I heard them say was, and I, I wrote down this quote, we don't want any bloodshed. We are all Cambodians. And literally about like two segments later, you see people down on the ground, like hands behind their head held at gunpoint because they're all about to be transformed into this revolution. But, you know, it's just, it just kind of happens to be violent. So it's, and, and another thing they said is you all can return in three days. So they were all told, you know, you can come back home in three days. We're just going to take, take you on a march. Uh, <laughs> you'll be able to go back in a few days, no problem. So it's just all built on a lie. Yeah, it's easier yeah. to, to get compliance when you're telling them, oh, we're only going to have you leave for a couple of days because the Americans are going to bomb. And so we're actually here helping you. And, of course, they have to tell the lie, like, oh, we don't want any bloodshed. But, of course, they do want bloodshed. They just want to couch it in nice terms. So it's, it's almost like campaign promises. Yeah, what, are, what is that, that saying in um, Mars Attacks? What do they always keep saying? Like, don't shoot where your friends or something like that? <laughs> yeah, it's like cops, you know? <laughs> Stop resisting. Stop resisting when you're not resisting and they're just beating the shit out of you. Yeah. Like, we come in peace. We come in peace. And they got there gunning everybody down. I actually know a guy. I, I, he works for the company I work for. And when I was working in Seattle, we were in the same office. And he is Cambodian and he escaped Cambodia as a child. Uh, his family was able to get out of the country um, by hiding gold uh, on them uh, to bribe their way out when he was very little. That's brutal. I mean, it just goes to show, you know, when, when people say, oh, well, you know, communism wasn't like fascism because communism wasn't genocidal and communism wasn't racist. Well, uh, oops. Yeah, and I've heard that the number is anywhere between one and three million Cambodians. And I do quibble with the word die uh, just because, sure, they, they, they died, but half of them were shot in the head died and the other half were starved died. So those aren't just natural natural deaths, you know? Those are murders. Well, I, one of the sicker ways they try to justify it is, oh, well, you can't really compare um, the results of the poor economic conditions to, uh, you know, Hitler, who, you know, wanted to exterminate all Jews and take over the world. It's just so wrong, you know, where to even start. But. Yeah, you absolutely can. I mean, just because you, maybe you don't shoot a guy in the head, but you steal all his property and you force him onto work a plot of land and he's like some English professor or something. And, you know, I mean, you're absolutely contributing to his death the entire time. Not, not to mention the constant threat of murder. Like if these people weren't doing this, they would probably just would have been shot right away as being some kind of a useless person. I mean, in the movie, we didn't see the Buddhists die, the Buddhist monks die, but we constantly were told that they were seen as like useless parasites by useless parasites. I thought that was always amusing that these soldiers would be standing around shouting at these Buddhist monks, calling them useless yeah. parasites while doing nothing productive themselves. Yeah, I mean, re religious or not, I mean, that was one of the more brutal parts of the movie is just these, you know, monks who, you know, they're obviously not accustomed to physical activity like that. They spent most of their life in peace and meditating and stuff. And, you know, I, I wrote down a quote, you know, you monks are parasites, you know, work harder, work harder. And just, you know, so, so demeaning, you know, so demeaning of the human being because obviously they want to stop, but it's just, you know, you know, if you stop this hard physical labor, you're just going to get shot and uh, it's just hard to fathom. Yeah, I just want to point out that this is our second episode in a row that features the communist revolution and it's not a communist revolution that goes very, very badly. I don't think that there's such a thing as a communist revolution that goes well. Has there been one in history? I don't think so, but uh, be sure to let me know if I'm wrong on that. Well, none of those were real communism, Robert. You know that. My bad. And and speaking of that, let's get let's get into that whole thing because that is one of the 
tropes that gets thrown at us whenever we're debating someone on Facebook and we mention the horrors of Stalin's Russia or Lenin's Russia or USSR, Mao's China, Castro's Cuba, Venezuela, wherever. They always say that's not real communism. Uh, but then when, when you start talking about like socialist healthcare and, and time off and all this stuff, then they say Scandinavian is socialism. And it's very, very confusing because nothing well, ever quite... Easy, right? Yeah, it's, they, it's they very take all the, the positive things of socialism and communism, and they're like, look at all this great stuff. But then they never accept all the negatives that come along with it. Right, and, and the Scandinavian countries actually have a freer uh, economic environment than the United States. And so, you know, they're, they're so anti-capitalist, but it's the capitalism in those countries that is providing the fat for those socialist programs to, to live on. Yeah, Dan, right. in fact, in the Tom Woods Elite today, um, someone made a post asking about, you know, a, a Sweden capitalist or whatever, and uh, Rose made a really good response, you know, because her family is Swedish or whatever, and just saying like, no, like, you know, Swedish, Sweden's capitalists, you know, they, they respect individuals and private property. Um, they want limited government. Um, <clears throat> it, you know, it's just kind of, it's just kind of things people wouldn't really know if all they did is listen to the media. Um, it's one of the yeah. Yeah. And, and just in a real general way, whenever they say it's not real communism, Jordan Peterson has a really great response and is like, well, then that that's a very conceited statement because you're saying that your vision of communism wasn't implemented. And if you had the power to do it, you would be the one to get it right. But it's been tried many, many times and it's failed every single time. But, but you, you're special and you would figure it out. And he goes on to say that even if you did assume power and you got to implement all of the communism that you wanted, your version of real communism, because it's never the same for anybody, right? The next guy behind you would stab you uh, in the night so that he could take over. So even if you were a good guy uh, with, you know, you're economically illiterate, um, you're not going to survive very long trying to do good for others when you have that ring of power and somebody else sees it there for the taking. So the whole real communism argument will never actually work out because no one would be stable enough in that position to even see it through. But beyond that, as we've learned from Mises and Hayek and uh, the motivation and, and the uh, uh, other problems, economic calculation problems, even if you perfectly implemented communism, it would fail economically because you would not be able to calculate. There'd be no price system. There'd be no private property. There'd be no, uh, there'd be no way to rationally allocate resources. There'd be so much waste and so much economic destruction that you would get the starvations and the famines and the diseases and all of the other problems that we saw in Mao's China and also in this movie uh, with uh, Pol Pot's Cambodia. Yeah, and that's yeah. one thing that really sticks out to you watching this movie is the massive misallocation of resources, both in actual physical items like food and clothing and possessions and mainly human physical labor, where you've got these intellectuals or i mean it, the movie mainly mainly focuses on this one family but it also pulls a bunch of people around them from Phnom Penh the capital of Cambodia so you got these city folk that are all forced to evacuate the city and become agrarian farmers people who have you know <laughs> i'm sure they could do okay doing that but they don't know anything about farming they're not specialized in farming they're not you know you got like people that could run a factory or design a car pulling a plow instead. I mean, what, how is that even close to being efficient? Yeah, and they went very primitive uh, in their farming techniques. And it was almost like a, a make-work program 
to make sure that they had full employment, right? So this forced labor that was the most uh, labor-intensive way of doing whatever needed to be done. There was no mechanization. There was no technological progress happening. None of that. And uh, it, it just seemed really bizarre that they were uh, imposing this on, on people. And like you said, these people weren't specialized in doing this. They were forced into it. And um, it, 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 it certainly was a, a massive misallocation, not only uh, economically, but also on moral grounds. I mean, this was all at gunpoint. Yeah, I mean, humans organically associate themselves and divide themselves up in the most efficient way as far as division of labor goes. And this guy was just like, well, forget all that. All those voluntary associations of people have specialized in different fields and can be far more efficient doing this thing and create far more wealth, you know, designing a car, and then he's able to pay a farmer. But no, forget all that. Let's just have this guy that is the greatest designer of cars in the world. Let's have him grab put a shovel in his hands for some reason. I mean, talk about a waste of economic potential. This guy, it's it, like I was saying before, at what point do you go, oh, this is a, this is a real bad idea? Because, you know, these communists, they love to say, well, look at the world as it is, and then we'll just divide up everything. And then everything will be great. Everybody will have the same. And we'll all be equally poor and miserable. But then they don't think about, I mean, the future. What would the future of that country be? Where everybody's got shovels and pickaxes. How, are, how is this group of people going to, I mean, are they going to like isolate themselves off? No, because they're fighting a war with Vietnam. So they're going to need guns and bombs and shit. How are they going to get that? Selling the meager crops that they can barely produce, that they can't even feed themselves with? And they don't even have money, so would they have to barter for it? I mean, what what was this guy's plan, Daniel, Stephen? What what was Pol Pot's plan? Seriously, does it make any sense well, to anybody? I felt like that was supposed to be a symbolic part of the movie, where in the beginning they had they just show the scene where you know the youngest daughter uh, Long she walks in and you know her brother and sister are dancing and they're listening to a vinyl record and father walks in from work, just real classic scene and you know. All of a sudden, they, they go from kind of like this regular life to, you know, being happy and comfortable to being, you know, on a field, you know, looking over and like you're, you're watching your dad, you know, plow, plow in the field. And, you know, you, you see like your, your brother being hit in the face because he, he stole like a green bean or something. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. Um, it's, you know, it's just like you guys said, like, not only is it a misallocation of resources, they destroy resources. You know, they're. It, it was a kind of agrarian socialism, you could tell. They just kind of wanted to start things from like the ground up. And uh, I don't know if they had any real interest, of, you know, other than making them farm and just kind of, you know, progressing that cycle or repeating that cycle. Um, it's hard to say. Well, they even rejected medicine. I and mean, they rejected all Western anything, seeing that as sort of a, a corruption on people and like get rid of your Western vanity ideas and that sort of thing and make everybody dress the same and we'll all be equal. And you can't even use medicine to save your dying child. Because that's Western. Yeah. At some I mean, point, it, at some point, you have to go. This is real dumb. I, at some point, I mean, if we're all dying because of these ideas. What what great society are you looking to build? Do, how many how many skeletons need to be building or paving the road with? I don't even. My roads. <laughs> my skull road. Two million yeah. uh, two million dead people. And the you idea know, of classlessness, it seems to uh, it seems to mean like you know they can't be individualistic in any sense. So uh, you can't even have family ties. Oh, that, that seemed to be one of the big aspects is that, you know, now that you're in this big group, um, you know, the, the group is your family. Like, you know, your actual blood and blood relatives, uh, you know, you're, you're just part of this big collective now. And one of the real eerie aspects of it is 
you know, take for example when the family got their car taken, you know, they said, uh, you know, Angar needs this car now, um, you don't need it anymore. And then the guy took his watch and said, you know, Angar needs this watch. But all the guy really did was take the guy's watch and put it on his wrist. So Angar right. really, Angar really just means the guys with the guns who are taking the stuff. I mean, when they're saying they need it for the group, they're just taking it for themselves. It's very eerie when you when you think about it in that literal sense. Yeah, and in the pre-show we talked about uh, them saying Ankar, like Ankar loves you, Ankar will take care of you, Ankar needs your car, needs your watch. Uh, Ankar, yeah, we'll yeah. take care of you. Yeah. Uh, what it means is the organization. Mm. So it's like speaking for for the collective. It's speaking for the communist state. Well, this is what government does: is destroy families, and this is an extreme version of it. But it's similar to what's been done in this country with welfare for the past fifty years. So yeah, cause not surprising the, to see it. The values of the family are incompatible with government. Um, it's very obvious. Well, you know, I, I don't know if you guys noticed it was kind of a, a short shown scene, but uh, when they were rounding everybody up in the beginning, they had a big pile of guns right in the middle of the right in the middle of the, um, the uh, street. Yeah, yeah, in the street there, and uh, they took everybody's guns. It's, it's kind of obvious, you know. At first, they're gonna disarm everybody, but you know, they also said at first they don't want any bloodshed, like. They wanted you to peacefully surrender to them and peacefully become a revolutionary. It's so bizarre. Well, it makes sense. It's definitely easier to trick your enemy than it is to fight your enemy. And you got these people that yeah just just went along with it. It was really sad. Yeah, there were the Cam- Cambodian soldiers that were re- returning to Phnom Penh, and I guess they had been uh, part of the Vietnam War on the American side, or or maybe against the American side. I don't I'm fuzzy on the details, but the Americans were pulling out of Vietnam at the beginning of this film and, and Cambodia. Yeah. And Cambodia. And so the Cambodian army was, was heading back, right? Because the Americans were pulling out and the rebel Khmer Rouge were coming into town to liberate the people from the Cambodian government. And it just seemed um, really bizarre. Cause yeah, like you were saying, they were telling everyone, Hey, we don't want any bloodshed. The Americans are going to bomb the city, so you all need to leave for like three days and you know get all your stuff and and get out of the city. And like you were saying, it was a deception. Was easier to get them out than to go house to house doing you know uh, whatever the, the Americans tried to do in Iraq, right? Go door to door and and take people out. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's uh, easier to just lie to people. And apparently they all either believed it or they didn't form up any kind of armed resistance. I don't know what the uh, climate was like at the time in terms of what they thought of the Khmer Rouge. I mean, we get one scene with a farmer who talks about why he supports the Khmer Rouge because the Americans had been bombing his land and killed his cow and blew up his house. And so anything that is in opposition to that, he supported. And then he even kicked out his own family because they were afraid of the Khmer Rouge coming and killing them all if they found out that he was a former government official guy. But it's interesting that this is all starts, it all kind of, at least the movie tells the story that it all kind of starts with the U.S. bombing of Cambodia due to their presence in Vietnam. Uh, it, It seems to me that there's more to it than that, that the Khmer Rouge had to have support from somebody. I mean, they did steal a bunch of stuff, obviously. But in the movie, you see everybody, you know, getting pulled out of cities and factories and we assume factories and other things like that and just making just being agrarian farmer type people. So they're obviously not making the wealth required to purchase Kalashnikovs and grenades and bombs and things like that that is required for this war effort. 
so where is it all coming from? I don't know. What is? Uh, we don't know the the history of the support of this. Probably some Chinese support. I mean, I don't know. Well, that was another interesting thing because right as they entered the camps, they they announced that you know if you worked in the government, if you were a teacher, um, you got to announce yourself so you get classified you know uh, instantly. So they wanted teachers. That you know the, the people who were teachers. They obviously they I guess they figured they were teachers of Western ideals in some sense if they were teachers at all. So, you know, you can see the type of people they were targeting. Um, they were trying to sterilize instantly. Right, yeah, get rid of any kind of intellectual opposition. Um, I didn't, we don't really get an explanation as to why the father is killed. Does anybody have an idea as to really why? Because he just gets taken away one day and just summarily executed. And we don't really know why. Because we all we have is this little girl's perspective. I think that that was the real horror is that, you know, they came and they just said, hey, you know, we need you to go work on a project. But um, the girl recollects that this guy is, you know, he has a pickaxe, you know, uh, tied to his belt. And, you know, they take him off. And the real horror for her is just at, at one instance, she re- she realizes, you know, everything she's seen. And she just kind of imagines, you know, what would have happened to my father. So she kind of right. it, she kind of, you know, knows what happened in that sense. Yeah, definitely. The whole family knew immediately that, okay, I'm being away. I'm being called away to be murdered. I mean, they, yeah. The minute we need to say goodbye to everybody. See, what I probably think happened is they probably figured out he was in the government and, you know, they, they, they took him away and, you know, just said, you know, uh, we're going to take you on some projects, but, you know, it's really their way of saying, hey, you know, you're, you're, you're leaving, you know, you can kind of see the look on his face. Like he knows what's about to happen. It's, he's not going to come work on a project, project and come back. Um, really, really sad. Yeah. I'm also curious um, because there's a couple scenes in the movie where we get the view of soldiers who almost there are several many soldiers in here who are, who are either spouting the company line or swallowed the Kool-Aid, but most of them are just kind of barking orders and being dicks to everybody and like look at their other fellow Cambodians as just low life pieces of shit. But some of the soldiers are like smiling at the kids and thinking that they're doing a good thing. So I don't know how much of this is just like a fear-based system where everybody's afraid of everybody else and you're afraid of doing anything because you're going to get beaten. And if well, you're, if you commit a crime, you're committing a crime against everybody because you know, we're, all because we're all into this together. People like to say uh, communism and fascism are so different. Well, one, one very similar aspect is that both admire the traits of the soldier and, and view the traits of the soldier as being ones that are most admirable because these are the people that are fighting for the revolution. And, whether it was for Hitler or for Stalin or for Lenin, you know, they were all fighting for revolutions. Yeah. Yeah. These, these people, these dictators are, are harmless without all these people that are willing to go along and follow their orders. It's all the true believers that are really the scary ones. And Dan just put up an article that I wrote recently. That was kind of what I was getting at with that racism is collectivism and that, you know, one single person acting in a racist manner doesn't really matter that much. People can just ignore them. It's only... It's only when people group up together and say, hey, you know, we're going to try to exterminate people of the other race that it really it only it only has, you know, destructive value in a collective sense. You know, there's not too too much, you know, single racists can do. So, right. Uh, yeah. One crazy person shouting from the rafters that we need to kill all the Jews isn't really that dangerous. But if a whole bunch of people start listening to him and start believing what he says and start doing what he says. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, a lot of people that grew up in Germany at that time, they, they didn't think too much of it. It's just the way it was. You know, we're going to have a new world. You know, that was one of the huge aspects was like the new, the new socialist man. Um, 
that was another quote I wrote down here is um, that only the children are free from stain. So they recognize very clearly in communist regimes that it all really starts with the children because adults are pretty much um, closed off in their ways. They're not really going to change their ways, but it's where the kids where you can really mold them to the revolutionary mindset, which is they're going for. Yeah, there's a lot of propaganda in this movie. Um, there's a constant loudspeaker that's always spouting some propaganda throughout the movie. And then yeah. the teachers explicitly in like the classrooms are spouting like endless propaganda. It's uh, very familiar <laughs> to me, having yeah. gone to public schools in this country. That's another thing. I mean, uh, the propaganda doesn't sound that much different than fascists. Uh, propaganda, it all pretty much has the same ring to it. Yeah, most state propaganda is pretty similar. I mean, it, some, under, are, some are cranked up to 11, and then some are more insidious, a little more smooth, but yeah, it, all, it all gets you to the same place eventually. It's all under the guise that, you know, the people is the government, so I mean, you know, the laws are really just the will, will of the people, and yeah. Right, and for all one big collective, if you do eat a bean when you're not supposed to, you're stealing from everybody. And you're oh, yeah, was... starving to death. <laughs> yeah, just totally brutal. I'd also like to talk a little bit about the equality aspects. I mean, they really did. This is a good example of equality, the equality of poverty and misery, make everybody the same, get rid of all differences. I mean, they're still not equal. There are still the overlords, and then each individual person is still not equal, and everybody's not equal to themselves from yesterday and so on and so forth but they destroy as much individualism as they can and this is this is what it looks like so if everybody's interested in trying to create an equal world it, it looks like the you have to get everybody equal to the lowest common denominator and it's a nightmare yeah very very much that aspect of um whatever the the leaders with the guns give you that's that's all that you actually need and you know if you're hungry beyond that point that's just your uh, desire for more things, uh, your uh, your greed, your Western greed, right. really, really, really sick, to, really sick to that extent. Because I doubt the soldiers are uh, hungry; they're probably well fed beyond what they did. Yeah, the need. soldiers were actually pretty well fed. But this country, this they created such a equality of poverty, and this is such a, a, a poor nation now that they've even got like little, you know, little kids working in the fields because everybody's got to work. They've thrown away all wealth for no other reason than they claim that it's corrupting or something like that. I'm guessing that, you know, the people at the top, as is the case in all communist countries, are doing quite well. But the movie didn't show us where all that stolen stuff went, but you can imagine it. they didn't just set it on fire. All that money and wealth and stuff went to probably fund the war effort. Now, there was this one scene where, where Laung was, uh, I don't know if it was a dream she had where she was just in front of like this big buffet full of, food and just every single type of food and it looks like it's just a big table f uh, for the elite. I don't know if that was an actual experience she had or if that was just like an epiphany she had of like all these like people that, you know, are forcing them to work in the fields, you know, they're just taking all the food and having these big, you know, dinner buffets. <laughs> yeah, I took that as as her like dreaming it or envisioning it because you she was so Yeah, because she was so hungry, you know, she was almost hallucinating like, oh, it would be so great to have this entire giant feast type spread laid out before me. But it almost was like that. Like when they were harvesting the, the crops, they would 
see them carted off by the soldiers. And then when she stumbled into that other camp where she got selected to be in the little Hitler youth, the military training, she yeah. saw that's where the food went. She got better rations and, and better food, and she actually got to eat some of the vegetables. So even within their little equality society there, there were very stark differences in the different groups of people. Like the initial labor camp that she was in where they were working in the fields, they were just given like um, almost a watery broth uh, as, as rations, and they were all starving, right? Her sister died from being malnourished and, and getting ill. Uh, people were uh, becoming emaciated and weak and still required to work. But then you go to this other camp and they're living a lot better because they're the ones siphoning the resources from the other. And it's uh, it's kind of a scary thing to think that they're proclaiming the equality and, and everyone is taking care of each other, but uh, they're no longer being exploited by Western values or Western culture or capitalists. Now they're just being exploited by other communists. I don't, I don't see how it's any better. In fact, it's far worse. Exactly. Oh, I mean, it's yeah, just, it's just far, far worse. I mean, they were eating bugs to survive. I mean, how did these, I mean, clearly these people were super scared and afraid. I mean, they're disarmed and they're surrounded by these armed soldiers. But, I mean, even the, like the soldier overlord people, couldn't they just see? I mean, of course, they're frightened too, but what was the propaganda that they were being fed? What, what did they believe? That they were doing a good thing? Because, you know, like we say, you never want to be the villain in your own story. So what was it that they thought that they were doing that was good? Because they're surrounded by nothing but misery and poverty and squalor and starvation and disease and famine. I mean, and they did that. They were doing it. <laughs> they created that. They did that. It wasn't like that before. They made well, that. Well, let me let me point out one observation. So, like we said, most of this started in 1954. So this movie would have been placed in about like 1975. So you can imagine most of the most of like the leaders, most of the soldiers, they were probably in their 20s or 30s, right? So most yep. of these were, pro were probably that generation of the brainwashed. So I can I can kind of see how how it all plays together in that sense. You you go one generation ahead, and you know these are kind of the offspring of like the main revolutionary people that started the, you know, the, uh, the regime. So that, that, that's just a theory. Yeah, I was doing a little bit of reading on this and it seemed like Pol Pot had a, a plan in place and there was a little bit of subterfuge. Like there was this organization, this kind of shadowy organization that was being put together and there was an intellectual split uh, at some point to where all of the people who were sort of coordinating this uh, started, um, bringing in people from the, the countryside, the peasants, into the fold of this movement, uh, promising them a better life because, I mean, they were absolutely destitute uh, if they weren't part of the cities or the uh, economy where all the French and, and capitalist type uh, citizens were. And so they were promising all these peasants that we'll lift you up, we'll, we'll free you from the shackles of uh, capitalism and promise you all of these great things, the socialist utopia, and we're going to have our own um, isolationist, protectionist, Cambodian nation, and we only need one or two million people to make it work, and so anyone beyond that is just extra, and there's no benefit in keeping you, and destroying you is no loss, were some, okay. of, the, some of the words they were using. So they wanted this agrarian socialist utopia that was just Cambodians for Cambodia, or Cambodia for Cambodians, and they were just going to be isolationist and just have their own little socially engineered area. Uh, the why, why do they have to kill everybody else, though? Why not just have your own little farm and call it good? Because have a little it, commune, <laughs> have a little commune off by yourself, and you can just get rid of money and trade amongst yourselves and 
try and live and see if it works. Why why do you have to invade the the capital and murder everybody? I think it's the uh, the power lust. I think they they realize that deep down they must realize it's not going to work, right? Well, I mean, it's like you've got this idea of how humanity should organize itself. If you have to enforce it with the point of a gun, then maybe it's not the best idea. Maybe you should be able to convince somebody that your ideas are really good and say, hey, come here, come join me at my little hippie commune or whatever, and we'll all live happy and we'll all take care of each other. And then if other people want to come because we're so successful and we're so happy, then they'll just want to come voluntarily. Right, yeah. If you have I mean, that's, it just makes sense to me. Okay, sorry. I mean, it, I mean it, it, it seemed to me that what they were trying to do, the intellectuals who are part of this organization, uh, they started bringing in people who were not intellectual to, to kind of be the grunts in this thing. And then anyone who was in the cities who could read or was part of the former government or was a professor or a teacher or somebody who could offer any level of resistance, they would murder them and they would force them out of the cities, make them dig their own graves, own mass graves, and then murder them uh, or bury them alive. And and that was the uh, depicted in that, that movie, The Killing Fields, which is another movie related to the Pol Pot Khmer Rouge extermination of people. Right. And, and, and this was a result of, uh, quote, Bullets are not to be wasted. Sweet. So well, they yeah. were very, they were allocating their, their scarce resources very carefully. Right. They weren't murdering via bullets because that was too costly. Well, right. th- think, about, think about this. They, uh, they know so little about productivity that they didn't even realize, hey, you know, if we just actually fed people and, you know, maybe tried to give them a few things here and there, make them a little bit happier, they'd probably produce more versus, you know, keeping them on the verge of death and having them produce probably as, as, as little as possible because they're one unmotivated and two, they physically just can't do it. Um, it just goes to show like they, they're just the opposite of capitalistic uh, intuitions, <laughs> which are more common sense. Yeah. I kind yeah, of like common sense flies out the window with these people, with these yeah. ideas. You know, I, I kind of took the, the initial labor camp that they were in as they were expendable. Everyone in that camp was expendable. And, and later on when long um, had left and joined the, the military camp and then, went back to go see if her family, her, her mom and her little sister were still there and they were all gone. The whole thing, the whole village, the little, uh, it's hard to call it a village, the, the labor camp that they lived in was desolate, right? Everyone was, was dead. Everyone was, had been taken away by the soldiers. And uh, while they were there, you know, they were being starved. So it seemed to me that, that those people were not in the plan, right? Not in the, the year zero plan of the new Cambodia. Yeah, which again, just what is the plan? What what is your master plan, Mr. Pot? Yeah, well, it says here they wanted to have a um, a national self-reliance, and even though thousands of people were dying of starvation uh, from being and and overworked in the countryside, they were still exporting rice. It says here that uh, they exported 150,000 tons of rice in 1976. So they were selling it. They were selling it for money, probably to buy more weapons. <laughs> and and those little headscarves, right? The little Sweet. red headscarves. And red. meanwhile, right, you know, the, the population is starving to death. I mean, here, here's something that will just blow your mind. So there's one quote in the movie where it says, Angkor rejects everything that was part of imperialist and feudalist society. So basically what they're saying is, you know, you should give up any personal item that has come from the result of capitalism or the result of division of labor or whatever. You know, where, where did their guns come from, though? I mean, it's just <laughs> mind blown. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think they were supported by either the Chinese or the Vietnamese, uh, but then they later went to war with Vietnam over who was uh, the better socialist, who who, were, who was doing it right, yeah. <laughs> the agrarians or the factory worker socialists. 
I mean, there are a lot of components to a gun. I mean, it's it's more than just a hunk of metal. It's uh, it's a really really long division of labor for a gun. Yeah, and they destroyed it all. All right. So another thing that I, I saw interesting on here was Stephen. You had mentioned the Buddhist monks were put to work in the in the fields and told that they were parasites. And it says here in the Wikipedia that Khmer Rouge killed twenty five thousand of them. Sweet. And what's the reason? I mean, I feel like monks are you know somewhat agrarian. They're you know at least respectful of life. That's well, they were part of religion, and they had to destroy religion. The, the, the state had to be, you know, the communist revolution, the Cambodia for Cambodians, had to be the number one thing in all of their lives. So they could have no religion. They could have no intellectual. They could, like you had just said before, they could have no imperialist Western culture. Uh, so all of that had to go. I mean, yeah, the, all you said is true. I just wonder if, the, if there was any other reason they, they hated the monks in general. I mean, what? That the monks come out and against the regime. The regime. I just. I wonder if there's anything else. Well, he uh, Pol Pot says that uh, he, they had a policy of state atheism. So all religions were banned, and uh, adherents of Islam, Christianity, and Buddhism uh, were repressed and murdered. The regime dispersed minority groups, forbidding them to either speak their languages or practice their customs. They especially targeted Muslims, Christians, and Western-educated intellectuals, educated people in general, people who had contact with Western countries or with Vietnam, disabled people, ethnic Chinese, Laotians, Vietnamese, uh, and some were put in uh, an S-21 camp for interrogation involving torture in cases where a confession was useful to the government. Interesting that you <laughs> mentioned that Western intellectuals were murdered. And that, yeah, we started off talking how Pol Pot is a Western intellectual. Yes, but some pigs are more equal than others, or some animals are more equal than others. But we're talking about building an equal society, Daniel. Communism, everybody's equal. So shouldn't have Paul Pot have been one of the first people murdered in his own revolution? What kind of hypocrisy are we talking about here? Oh, shocking. Well, yeah, if he was consistent, certainly. And you've got to wonder, do they mean Western educated in the literal sense? Or, you know, if, if you're caught trading with somebody, are you called a Western pig? You know, <laughs> even if you don't even know anything about Western culture at all. It's just kind of humorous in a dark way. Yeah, like I had said earlier, I think it's it's a lust for power by the uh, leaders of the movement. So Pol Pot and the other um, work party leaders of the collective leadership that they had had. But but couldn't he have gone like a more traditional route? I mean, whatever. But generally, he definitely. It seems to me that he picked a path of great resistance by saying, you know, we're going to oppose the U.S. We're going to oppose the current government. We're going to even oppose the Vietnamese. If he wanted just power, he could have just like become a dynamic speaker and gotten himself elected to government and become like the president or whatever. It seemed like he had an idea of what a good and ideal society would be, whether he swallowed the Kool-Aid on the Marxism or whatever. But at some point, it seems like you would look and see the shit show you've created and go, maybe not the best idea. Maybe that's just me. How did Pol Pot die? Just, he died of old. some suspect he may have been poisoned, but he was he was old. He was like he was 1998 when he died. Oh wow! Well, that was what like a year or two after the regime collapsed. So well, it says they did most of their um, control of the country and destruction uh, until 1979. Oh, I see. Yeah, then the uh, the party was kind of ousted, and he kind of lived in exile for the rest of his life. Yeah, and here's a little bit of background. Um, Cambodia became independent, I think, of French control in 1954 as a result of a Geneva conference. Both left and right wing parties struggled for power in the new government. The king, 
uh, Khmer King pitted the parties against each other while using the police and army to suppress extreme political groups. Corrupt elections in 1955 led many leftists in Cambodia to abandon hope of taking power by legal means. The socialist movement, while ideologically committed to guerrilla warfare in such circumstances, did not launch a rebellion due to the party's weakness at the time. And so that's when they went along the um, recruiting the peasantry, right, the um, people living outside of the cities to, to build up basically pawns to use uh, to prepare to, to overtake the government. It says here, um, when Saar returned to Cambodia, and Saar is Pol Pot, Saar was his original name, uh, from France, he returned in 1966, uh, organized a party meeting where a number of important decisions were made. The party was officially but secretly renamed the Communist Party of Kampucha. Lower ranks of the party were not informed of the decision, and it was also decided to establish command zones and prepare each region for an uprising against the government. So they started regimenting and um, having a hierarchy structure, uh, breaking it down so that they would be able to have a, an organized resistance. Uh, so when they, they, had, they desired power, but for whatever reason, they were unable to achieve it politically, so they decided to take it violently. Is that what you're saying? Right, yeah, and it looks like this has been, uh, this was 20 years in the making. Um, this film was depicted in 1975, so Stephen, to your point, uh, while they were picking up people in the, in the peasant class and having them join their ranks, they were having a whole new generation of children that were raised uh, to believe this stuff. And so they became the, the foot soldiers, you know, the shock troops for, for, uh, for the movie setting here. Right, I mean, you saw two different sets of 10-year-olds. You saw one set that came from, you know, the family, like, the, like Lowndes family. Then you saw others that had guns in their hands, and they were just as aggressive as the older ones. It was, uh, you know, just really, de really depends on how you're raised. You can be raised in any way. Kids are susceptible to almost anything. Yeah, yeah. And and one more comment on uh, Pol Pot and and equality. It says by the summer of 1968, uh, Pol Pot began transitioning from a party leader working with a collective leadership to becoming an absolutist leader, where before he had shared communal quarters with the other leaders, he was now in his own compound with his own personal staff and his own guards. Outsiders were no longer allowed to approach him, and rather people were summoned into his presence by his staff. So right there in 1968, he had even broken down the leadership structure within the communist and socialist movement that he was a part of, and he became uh, basically their head, uh, and became more equal than the rest. I guess by definition, if you if you hate individualism, you you can hate people. That's no problem because, you know, what's the point of liking anybody if all you're liking is their individualism and their individual traits that make them who they are? You know, they might as well just be someone who stands in line and doesn't ask questions. Yeah, that's a good point. And they were breaking people's uh, individually individuality down, right? Like. They, they made them all dye their clothes black. They made them all cut their hair and all look the same and all act the same way and all do the same work and all listen to the same propaganda. Um, so I, I, I think that that is a very good point because then it also made them easier to dispose of, right? Easier to murder. They, they called the monks, you know, pigs or, or cattle or animals, right? And that's something that is very common in um, warring states. They, they, denigrate the uh, opposition, make them less than human, so it's easier to kill them. Yeah, and just, just another mind-blowing point, um, they made the people use berries to, to dye their clothes, and there's that scene where they had the big bucket of berries, and she was dyeing all... Uh, 
I imagine they weren't allowed to eat the berries. They probably were just allowed to use the berries, like in that sense that they had to dye their clothes with it and probably toss it to the side, and that's it. Uh, you know, if you were caught eating the berries, it's probably you know stealing from the collective. It's insane. Yeah, it's much easier to kill somebody when you don't see them as human. Uh, you see that throughout history. Um, the Japanese did it to the Chinese up, up to and leading into World War II. Um, people from other lands have yeah, always been doing it. Um, the United States military has successfully dehumanized the enemy. Um, it used to be, I, I don't know, I'm pulling this out of my ass right now, but I know the fire rates of soldiers in like the Civil War was like 30 or 40% or something really low. But then as you get the propaganda machine going, and then into World War One, and it was still really low, and then World War Two, it was a little bit higher, and it keeps climbing, and it keeps climbing until modern days, the soldiers will fire on and kill an enemy. It's like, I don't know what it is now, but it's probably north of 75, 85%, something like that. But yeah, as you successfully dehumanize your enemy and propagandize your soldiers, they'll be more and more likely to kill as they see the other person less as a human and more as some sort of a villain monster creature. Yeah, I mean, that's that's even a, a tactic among the new left nowadays is, um, you know, if, if you don't think like them, if you don't accept their views, uh, they don't even regard you as having an opinion. I mean, you're just, you know, be, because you're you're attacking their identity with your opposition to their views. It's not, it's not really just disagreeing with them. It's you're attacking them as a person if you disagree with them. You know, that's... That's kind of how they view, you know, the whole words are, can be violence because your words are violence if you don't agree with them. So that's kind of the right, core. So then that justifies see. that justifies them punching you and attacking you because they see right. it as defensive, a defensive violence. Right. I mean, it's just it's so bizarre. I mean, you know, no, normal people don't think like this, but um, I, I, I kind of feel in some sense, I think a lot of people are starting to wake up to all the crazy leftists and just, man, like they actually really, really don't make sense at all. I mean, <clears throat> it's only them who pat themselves on the back and they form their own cliques and get together and, <laughs> and I really hope turn it's on each other. Super, I really hope it's a super tiny minority that's just really vocal because it seems like, yeah, the left has just gone completely insane, but hopefully it's, uh, they're, you know, vastly outnumbered by more moderate lefties. Not that that's a whole lot better, but, it's sadly just kids coming out of college campuses nowadays. I mean, I, I see what's going on in my college campus and man, I mean, I, I put my head, I put my noise canceling headphones in when I go through campus. I mean, I just really don't like a lot of the stuff I see. Um, you know, Tom, Tom talks a lot about how when he was back at Harvard, you know, there was literal communists passing out pamphlets and boy, if there isn't the same thing nowadays, I mean, it's just, uh, you wouldn't believe it. Yeah, no, we hear it all the time. It's true. There's a lot of these, uh, lefty progressive professors that, are teaching all these poor, young, impressionable kids that are unfortunately paying for this indoctrination. I mean, they already get 12 years of indoctrination in the state schools, and then they go to colleges, and they pay to get indoctrinated more by these commies. And oh, they man. come out, and they start talking about safe spaces and microaggressions and other bullshit. Oh, man. I, my, uh, my statistics class this last, uh, this last spring... I used to show up a few minutes early sometimes, and I remember I'd just peek into the class before me, and the professor before me, he was playing, he was playing YouTube clips of the Young Turks to these kids, and yeah. I, 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 I kind of got a gist from it that it was like a criminal justice class. I mean, just, just imagine that, you know, this is, this is their insight to criminal justice as the Young Turks, and <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, oh my God. Just imagine, just imagine your, uh, your college education being YouTube clips, just, oh. Well, yeah, if you're just going to do that, why not just, just go home and quit college and get, get on YouTube? I mean, you can do that by yourself. Oh, yeah, I already oh, do that. Guys, That's pretty much yeah. what I do. Well, <laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah, they, not do, 
they, they do it at college, yeah, then they go home and do it. It's uh, man. If you ever, if you, I used to love Reddit, but if you ever wonder why it's so leftist, I mean, it's only that bad because that's literally all of them. That's that's where they all go. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. But these ideas are spreading out into the culture. You see it in movies. We see it in movies a lot, and you see it in TV shows, and of course in the news. I think a lot of people were just so insecure they they kind of hold these views just to think, oh wow. I mean, I wouldn't want people to think I'm racist. I wouldn't want people to think I'm homophobic or transphobic. I mean, just kind of out of protection of yourself. Like it would make sense someone who's libertarian, but kind of you know on on the face of it, they pretend to be like you know kind of moderate liberal because. They don't want people to harass them or, you know, come after them or dox them or, you know, like it's it's something you like, it's something you actually got to think about. Like people could, you know, figure out where you live and, you know, come hurt you. You know, if, 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 if it's at the point where anarcho-capitalism is being equated with fascism and, you know, because you, because you believe in this, uh, you know, your, your words are violence. I mean, it's, it's scary. Look what, look what happened to Walter Block. I mean, they, they completely took him out of context and, He's had death threats. You know, he's had people on campus just come up to him and be like, "Hey, like we're gonna come get you." I mean, it's hard to imagine. Uh, like you got you you got to go teach your class that day, and like you just got you know some, someone just told you they, they got to they're gonna come get you. I mean, wow, just, I've never had that happen to me, but I can you can just imagine it probably messes up your day, to say the least. Yeah, these people, these lefties, think that they can punch out bad ideas. That it, it seems really strange to me. That have they never been attacked themselves, or do they are they so weak minded? that if they face any pushback to their ideas, they're instantly going to change their mind? Because that's yeah. not really how the world works. I mean, if you go and punch a Nazi, they generally tend to get defensive, and they're not necessarily convinced that their argument is wrong. Yeah, they, they just see be... the other side as being completely violent and hostile to them. Yeah, it'll reinforce their Nazism. <laughs> it'll make right. them more Nazi. Yeah, there was that YouTube video the other day. Um, you know, this, this guy had this Nazi armband on, and... You know, he was basically and Antifa like followed this guy through like Twitter or something, and they like stalked this guy until they found him in person. Like, you know, they just like knocked the guy out on video. I mean, it, it's true he may have been hurling racial slurs and he may have been yelling, but you know, it, the fact is, if if he didn't physically hurt anybody, um, or he was or he wasn't on private property, like you, know, you can't just knock someone out, even if they have a freaking swastika on their arm. Man, it's just. Yeah, but you you look you look at the comments in the video, and pretty much all of them are supportive of knocking the guy out. You know, this is the violence is just being justified now. It's no matter what it is. So yeah, yeah. It reminds me of my reminds me of my kids. My uh, four year old will tell my two year old, "Hey, hit me," and and she only says that so that she can hit her back because <laughs> she knows about self defense. You know, that's the only legitimate uh, form of violence. Uh, so we, we try to teach that to them already, but she's trying to work out ways around it. So it's almost like a false flag, you know, she'll say, uh, you know, hit me. I'll, See, look, mom and dad, she just hit me. So now I can hit her back. Right. Well, that could, that could be a whole other debate in itself. Uh, is self-defense ever violence or are they, are they opposites or are they equatable at all? Cause obviously if you're using self-defense, you're using a type of force, but is it ever a violent type of force to defend yourself? I've always wondered that. Well, I consider it self-defense is legitimate violence versus initiatory violence, which is illegitimate violence. Yeah, I mean, you get into arguments with people who want to get into the real logistics of words and, you know, oh, taxation is a theft because of, you know, this logistic. And it's like, well, you know. Oh, the semantics? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, hey, speaking of false flag, um, I was, while you guys were talking, I was looking up a little bit more about how the Khmer Rouge came into power. And it says here that Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, uh, the, the table was set for them in January of 1970 when the head of state, uh, Sihanouk, 
I'm butchering the name, Sihanouk, ordered the government to stage an anti-Vietnamese protest in the capital. The protest quickly spilled out of control, and the embassies of both North and South Korea were destroyed. Sihanouk, who had ordered the protests, then denounced them from Paris and blamed unnamed individuals in Cambodia for inciting them. And then he, it was found out that he uh, had actually organized this, and then he was removed from being the head of state, and that left a power vacuum in which Pol Pot was able to uh, seize more power and more more influence. So it was a backfired um, false flag that gave him the uh, the vacuum to to fill into. Mm. Sweet. So interesting. So Stephen, I know you had a bunch of notes for this. So why don't we veer back towards the movie, the narrative in the movie? And then uh, we'll start to wind the show down. We've been going uh, over an hour already. And, and uh, I don't think this one needs to be super long. We've just been beating the shit out of communism for a while. So let's get back to the narrative oh, of, of the movie. Feels good. It does. Well, it feels good, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, just the big theme of the video is individualism and trying to conquer it. And uh, ironically, the, all the soldiers, they're all acting individualistically, if you really think about it. I mean, they're all acting with their own motives but they feel like their motives are part of this big collective motive. Um, it's just kind of odd in that sense. Like, you know, the, the, everything they do is an actually is a complete contradiction. You know, when Hans Hoppe says you can't argue against private property without contradicting yourself. I mean, he means it literally, literally. I mean, you know, to, to destroy private property, you have to use private property. You have to use the fact that you as a soldier aren't being aggressed against by other soldiers. Otherwise, I mean, you would just be in a war. You wouldn't have your own private property, which is, you know, basically what everyone else has. Yeah, it's certainly a walking contradiction, right? Like they have to have some level of self-ownership and they have to have some level of having property and they have to have some level of inequality in order to achieve or attempt to achieve their ends here. Right. Yeah, but it's I mean, never addressed or admitted to because it gets drowned in the propaganda and screaming and yelling if you ever challenge it. And, not, and unfortunately, nobody ever challenges it in the movie. They just kind of run away and try and survive. But yeah. we see the horrors through their actions. So, Robert, while I was watching this and actually watch this with my wife, um, I was thinking, you know, if Robert was involved in this, he would be he wouldn't just leave his house and start walking along the road. He would mouth off to these people and get murdered right away. (laughs) I don't know about that. Um, I might I would definitely try and escape. Um, And I don't know how badly I would feel if I had to guerrilla style take down a couple of soldiers on my way. I don't know how badly I would feel about that, but I would definitely try and get out of there. That's for sure. I had my entire livelihood stolen, my family murdered, starved, beaten, dehumanized. I, um, I'd probably lack a whole lot of empathy for these people, so I wouldn't feel too bad. Do you feel like you would RICO them and hold uh, any of these Khmer Rouge soldiers equally responsible and, and thus killing them would be self-defense, even though those particular ones that you might encounter wouldn't necessarily be the ones who actually uh, did the individual acts against you? Well, that's a funny thing, right? Um, if you kill the Pol Pot guy and maybe a couple of the main key heads, all these other soldier guys and all these people that are following orders and whatnots, and you tell them to just go back and live their lives, what they were doing beforehand, they'll probably just turn around and become contributing positive members to society because now they've been told that that's what they're supposed to do or whatever. They would just give up their barking orders and shooting people ways and probably go back and do that because they're essentially, they're normal people. I mean, that's the horror of war, right? 
turns normal people into murdering psychopaths. It turns in these kinds of crazy communist revolutions and other sorts of revolutions, and people would do things in these situations that they would never do in normal life. So you get rid of the, the heads, and these people are completely redeemable. Now, are they guilty? Yeah, it's fairly sticky wicket, right? I mean, would I RICO them? Are they guilty? I mean, you have self-ownership, yes. Are you being threatened by people above you? Also, yes. But they are complicit. Um, they are complicit. And if they saw you, they would probably attempt to murder you. Right. Um, I would say, yes, they're guilty. I would say they'd be far more productive returning them to normal civilian life, if that makes sense, as opposed to having them rot in a jail cell. Now, do they deserve to be rotting in a jail cell? Probably, yeah. But if you're talking about recovering from this nightmare and getting back to a productive society, then I think you get them back into the productive society as soon as possible. And get rid of the people at the top because those are the psychopaths, the real psychopaths that had this bizarre, nightmarish vision for society. But, yeah. man, I don't know. I, I, I'll leave that to some other libertarian minds and some other people, maybe the people that were actually victims of it that would, you know, want justice or not. It's hard to, uh, for me to speculate how I would feel about it. And it's usually best not to decide when you're super emotional. <laughs> but you probably do need to decide at some point if you are the one harmed and faulted. I'll, I'll, let me turn the question back on you, Daniel. What, what do you think should be done with uh, just your average um, Khmer Rouge member? Well, I think you would uh, try to escape, evade, avoid, uh, and then if encountered, then need to defend yourself. So I wouldn't do like the solid snake, Metal Gear Solid, uh, sneak around in order to kill them, but I would be attempting to avoid them. <laughs> well, if you could. Yeah, if you, if had you could. To. But yeah, I mean, you when, had, when, it, once you're in the encounter, I mean, they're there to kill you. So then it's a self-defense situation. Right. But what would you do with the average Khmer Rouge member after this whole thing is over? Are they guilty of crimes against humanity? Are they guilty of murder and all these things? Do you throw them in jail? I'm not sure how, how that would be handled in, uh, in an Afghanistan society. I, you, I, that's my answer. I don't know. I mean, unless I, 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 I knew well, I'm asking that, what that you in, would do. I don't know what I would do. That's my answer. <laughs> Cop out, no answer. Bullshit. No, if, if you, just the average Khmer Rouge soldier, you don't know if they did something uh, on an individual level or not. I mean, if you saw one of them had murdered somebody, that's a different story than if they're just one of, you know, thousands of a Khmer Rouge soldier who may have never fired his weapon. What about the Khmer Rouge soldiers who are barking orders and threatening people with their guns constantly? Because it seems like every single one of those people was doing something like that. Yeah, I, I still don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, there's ret retributive uh, justice is what you're asking, right? And it, it's almost as if you're act, act, asking a collective question, like how should they be handled by society? No, 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 no. That's what you asked me. So I was turning it back around on you. Or is that not the question you asked me? Because that's what I answered. Well, I was asking you on an individual level, like how would you handle it um, for you personally? Handle what? Being in that situation. <laughs> Being like one of these to, people? Trying to survive the situation. Being one of the potential victims of this regime. Well, I wouldn't go along with it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I wouldn't just sit there and meekly go to my march to my death, although I'm sure there's an implication. Like when the father just gets marched away to his death, I'm sure it was like, well, if he doesn't, then, you know, his whole family's going to get murdered or something like that. Yeah, and it seemed as if he knew what was going on there. Yeah. All right, so, hey, I found a little bit more information on Pol Pot and uh, the regime takeover that's kind of interesting. It, it outlines their plan, and... Uh, 
We can use this as our big flourish, big finish. Sweet, sweet. What's our plan? All right, so it says Cambodia adopted a new constitution in January of 1976, officially changing the name of the country to Democratic Kampuchea. I like that. It went full commie, full retard, and threw in Democratic in the name. Sweet. Uh, so it's that, you know, Bernie Sanders, Democratic Socialism uh, nonsense. Uh, the newly established assembly uh, elected the new new government with Pol Pot as prime minister. Um, it says here the Khmer Rouge regime saw agriculture as the key to nation building and national defense. Pol Pot's goal was for the country to have 70 to 80 percent of the farm mechanization completed within five to 10 years. So the agrarian primitive stuff that we saw in the movie, they, they were planning on making it more mechanized. Uh, they plan to build a modern industrial base on the farm mechanization within the next 15 to 20 years and then become a fully self-sufficient state. He wanted to take the economy and make it the primary source of goods for the nation, sever foreign relationships, and radically reconstruct the society to maximize the production of agriculture. He wanted to avoid foreign domination and industries, so he refused to purchase goods from other countries. Well, this might be a good time to talk about imperialism and how it fucks up everything. Yeah, I mean, this seems to be a reaction to imperialism, right? Yeah, it seems to be an organic. I mean, in much the same way that Hitler was a reaction to the Treaty of Versailles, that these are, you know, indigenous peoples that are uh, had enough with with uh, imperial rule, and they didn't take this guy didn't take the Gandhi route. He took the the Kalashnikov route. It seems to be kind of a natural thing. Yeah, you know, and, and now that I've read this, it's starting to make more sense and why he was evacuating the cities and killing all the people who were from the cities, because he saw the farmers as the important people to keep around. And everyone else was just uh, a useless class of people to be exterminated because the farmers, well, in his mind, were providing all of the value, right? Like in traditional Marxism, it's labor in the factories provides all the value for things. But because um, Pol Pot was an agrarian socialist, he thought it was the farmers providing all the value. And so the monks who all they did was eat and pray and, and the people who lived in the cities were just being bougie capitalists and eating, taking advantage of the farmers. So it made sense. Uh, and it says here that his, um, let's see, his... Right, if you see the parasite, if capitalists as, and monks as parasites, then yeah. Yeah, so it says here... They don't provide any value. When he's evacuating the urban areas, uh, he said the first step in progress was deliberately designed to exterminate an entire class. So he was trying to kill all of the people in the cities. And then I suppose he's going to pay for the farm mechanization with rice sales, even though he doesn't believe in money? Yeah, yeah, apparently. Sweet. But, but it, was a, it was a part of a, a plan, man. <laughs> like he would get to that goal, but he was going to take 15 or 20 years to get there. So he was, he was buying things in the meantime, it sounds like. Okay. Genius. All right, Stephen, let's uh, bring you back in on this conversation, and then we'll wind it down and potentially go into Kathleen Turner Overdrive. And Patrick from Liberty Weekly might join us for that. If, uh, if anyone wants to check that out, join us on the Patreon uh, supporting members, and uh, you can find that at actualanarchy.com slash tip jar, and you'll get behind the scenes that has pre-show, the show, and the Turning the Frog's Gate Overdrive action uh, after the episode ends. Yeah, I, th I think I have a pretty good way to wind down the episode so uh i actually reread the communist manifesto recently and if you all have read it it's actually a pretty short read you can probably do it in like half an hour but in chapter two he lists 10 points of you know what the ultimate social society is going to have um and i'll just go ahead and list them I mean, we can kind of see where these people get their ideas so one 
abolition of property and land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Hmm. Uh, three, abolition of all rights of inheritance. So, yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, number four, confisc- confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. Uh, five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. Uh, six, centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. Uh, he was very, very specific in the hands of the state. Like, you know, this was to be centrally planned. He didn't, he didn't sidestep that. Um, yeah, no, he's specifically stating that everything's going to be centrally planned. Now, I, I don't know if he was supposed to when he, when he said state. I don't know if he was insinuating that oh the state is really just the workers, just the workers altogether. I mean, as if that means anything, you know what, what does that mean? But anyways, uh, number seven, extension of factories and instruments of production owned by the state. Um, number eight, equal liability of all to work. This one's interesting, right? Equal liability of all to work. So you're going to work. It's, you know, it's, that's, you have no that's choice why, not to. Yeah. That's, that's why whether it was Hitler's death camps or Pol Pot's death camps, I mean, that's the, one of the first things they ask you is like, if you're unable to work, you know, make a line because. You yeah. Know, go over here work. where we're going to shoot you in the head. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, those are the first, specifically the first people killed in, in Hitler's concentration camps. Cause I've, I've read, a, I've read a good deal about those. Um, so equal liability yeah. of all to work. <laughs> Isn't it ironic that the leftists today are virtue signaling um, to, to speak up for the oppressed and, and maligned classes of people, or at least they think they are, yet their heroes here openly murdered them, murdered all those people. Specifically the workers they killed, I mean, it's... It's crazy. And just these last two here, a uh, combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries. Uh, huh, that was an interesting one. And uh, the last one is free free education for children in public schools. Free education. And ab- ab- free, right? You know that? Yeah. And, 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 and the next bulletin of point 10 is uh, abolition of children's factories labor in its present form. Uh, didn't seem like you did too well if you were a child as well. So. No, children didn't really have it well off in... Uh communist revolution yeah it's only it's only the accumulation of capital that allows for wealth to provide you to not have to work it's not due to some government decree oh i mean you try to explain that to people it just it just blows their mind like hold on you're saying the reason you know people have like eight kids in this country is because they don't have the productive means to produce for that many people like they need all eight people to work in order to have enough income collectively <laughs> just blows their mind. Yeah, it's not yeah. like uh, there were like these evil parents that wanted to send their kids into the factories and onto the farms to work. It's like no, they they barely had enough to eat. <laughs> that's, that's why they, everybody had to work. I like yeah, the way it's, Tom it's Woods puts option. it. Tom Woods puts that it, it's like as if the, as if their options are work or to go to school. Like you know, the, those are their two options, and you know they're just forced to go to school. They're just forced to work. Otherwise, they'd just be in school. Uh, as if they have schools in a lot of these places, it's just crazy. Right. It's it's, it's work or starve, or it's it's work or work in the fields, or work in the brothels, or starve. It's not hang out and have a good childhood and play in the streets and stuff. Oh yeah, just uh, skip in the meadows. <laughs> right. All right, boys. So, what do you say we um, give our final ratings on the movie? 
So, Stephen, why don't you go first? And what we do is a black and red for a movie we don't like and a black and gold for a movie we do like. Oh, this is a clear black and gold. Um, I mean, they did a really good job with the whole movie. I mean, I was, I was talking to Robert right before they right before we went on. Um, a lot of the elements, is, it's kind of as if, huh, if we're going to try to, you know, make a caricature of, caricature of what we think these people would act like, like this would be it, you know, just the uh, we're getting we're getting rid of all money and, you know, individual individualism is, you know, banned here. I mean, it's just, you know, it's I don't mean, it, it, there's no real words for it. It's just scary real. So uh, definitely yeah, one of the best. Sorry, definitely one of the best. What? Uh, it's just definitely one of the best movies I've ever seen, especially in 2017. Very nice. Yeah. Glowing review. Yeah. I was just going to say that this movie was based off a book based off of uh, the main character's memory. Right. So. This is what she remembered. This isn't like, and it's in, like you said, Stephen, this is like a cartoonish version of communism in action, just the horrors of it. So yeah, this is a definite um, black and gold for me. When you accurately show what a communist revolution looks like, it makes me happy because it's a nightmare. I want more socialists and more communists to watch this kind of stuff and refute it. I would love it for them to come along and say, this isn't what Marx intended. but actually don't just drop it and say that show me why and show me how, because this is an ideology that leads to this kind of murder. Whereas our ideology is a peaceful one. Uh, People say that, you know, capitalism kills people. Well, no scarcity kills people. Governments kill people. Um, The natural state of the world has been killing people since it was started, but it's only through the wealth and capital accumulation that allows for people to enjoy kind of a luxurious living standard and uh, communism just strips that all away, strips it and uh, destroys humans and destroys humanity and strips away their humanity in a way that like in the movie, it was showing how, you know, emotion and family bonds were frowned upon. Uh, What kind of monstrous ideology strips that away? Uh, So yeah, super black and gold, um, not your traditional protagonist, antagonist movie, but it is more just like a, a protagonist trying to survive against this massive ideological antagonist. So, Daniel? Yeah, well, that that was a pretty good review from both of you fine young gentlemen. Maybe we're not so young anymore. But uh, I'm going to go black and red on this. I'm going to go black and, and rouge on this one, primarily because it didn't really tell much of a story. It was just like you had said earlier, just a... Um, like a day in the life or a snippet, like a snapshot of kind of what was happening. And you could tell it was based on her recollections of being a five-year-old. And it was interspersed between her longingly sit staring at something or sitting there um, and then, you know, working in the death camp or working in the fields or her brother getting hit in the face with the butt of a gun for trying to, you know, take like an eggplant or something like that. And I found that this was a um, not an entertaining movie at all. I, I I do agree that it did show a lot of the horrors of communism, but it didn't really get into the meat of the philosophy. It was more of just, here's how they try to make people into automatons, make them destroy their individuality and uh, exhibit their brutality. But like I said, it wasn't like an enjoyable movie for me, but uh, maybe I was hoping for something a little bit different. Maybe it was built up a little bit too much for me because Stephen had brought it up and then another guy in one of our chats had brought it up and said, like, oh man, this thing's so amazing, you got to watch it. So... I hate to be the Debbie Downer on the uh, Pol Pot uh, Cambodia movie here. So you're a commie and you hated that your communist ideology was shown in a bad light. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) It wasn't real communism, man. (laughs) It's only only real when it works. 
Okay. <laughs> Must be nice. Movie too. So. Must be nice to always be right. What's it like? That's oh, the best, man. It is the best. Yeah. Well, what do you say, boys? We go into uh, some Kathleen Turner Overdrive here. So I want to thank uh, our audience for joining us for this episode of the Actual Anarchy podcast. You can find this at actualanarchy.com slash 43. If you like what we do here, do check us out at the actualanarchy.com slash tip jar and find out all the ways that you can support us. We've got Amazon links and a bunch of other links you can check out, including uh, a way to get to our Patreon site and get our bonus content and other goodies that we provide. And uh, I'll just say good night from my side and pass the mic over to Stephen and then to Robert. And then we'll go into the Kathleen Turner Overdrive, Turn the Frogs game. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Let's do it again soon. Yeah. Just glad to have you on, Stephen. It's been fun. Uh, we'll come back and do, what was that other movie you're going to do? I'm going to do Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street. The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Another fun one. So yeah, come back and join us for that. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do